today's biggest New Bedford stories on... Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg with you flying solo tonight. The silent assassin Matt Costa, science advisor Matt Moniz, and psychic medium Stephanie Burke all out of the program tonight. But you're, you're stuck with me. Happy New Year almost. Merry Christmas belated. It's been a little while since we've talked to you here on Spooky South Coast. We have been uh, kind of otherwise indisposed over the holiday season. That's what happens this time of year between wrestling and traveling and everything else that's been going on it's nice to finally be able to sit down and talk about the paranormal with you Uh, although tonight we're not really going to be talking about the paranormal tonight we're going to be joined by a couple of guests a little bit later on that will talk with us about star trek we're going to take a deep dive into the world of star trek with mark cushman who is an author and an la-based screenwriter and director who has worked on some of the star trek programs we're also going to be talking with vic mignona who is a veteran voice actor who has worked on the popular web series star trek continues where he plays captain kirk so we'll be joined by vic and mark a little bit later on to talk star trek and of course we'll take your calls 508-996-0500-877-996-1420 if you need to call from outside of the local area we have that option for you uh now tonight i also want to let you know a little bit little something too uh for those of you who were following along on uh, my facebook page or on my twitter you may have seen that i gave some of this information i was secretive about it a few weeks ago when i said uh, i was going to miss the show a couple weeks ago because i had to travel i had to go down to atlanta for the weekend And I couldn't really talk about the reason why. Well, I've been given the green light to uh, open up and discuss a little bit about that. So I flew down to Atlanta to film for an upcoming television series that will be airing on the Weather Channel in early 2020. Yes, the Weather Channel is getting into the paranormal game, game, well, a little bit. The name of the show is called The Scariest Stuff on Earth. And what it's going to do is it's going to analyze some of the interesting reports that have come from around the world and look at it from a variety of different perspectives. Now, that's all that I can say. I can't really get too deep into the content of what we talked about, but uh, I was the person offering the paranormal perspective for some of the uh, videos and and, and cases that we investigated for part of the show. So basically what's going to happen is you're going to see me peppered throughout the entire season uh, talking about some of these different cases and offering some of my insight and hopefully expertise in what it could be from a paranormal perspective. And they're going to offer other insights as well. So from what I understand, there's not really going to be any um, definitive conclusions, but we're just going to kind of put everything out there for you, the audience, to analyze. So that's going to be coming up sometime in early 2020. I had a blast filming it. Uh, The director, Grace, is phenomenal. The cameraman, Nigel, also very patient with me. Uh, I did not have much of a voice. For those of you who tuned into the show Uh, a few weeks ago, you know that I was losing my voice. I had a cold. And when that happens, nine times out of 10, I lose my voice. And it was severely strained and I was having trouble speaking. Uh, I stopped talking as much as I could, knowing that I had to fly and film this. And I thought I was doing pretty well. I I thought I was doing okay. Uh, My voice was decent. It wasn't as strong as I would hoped it would have been, but, you know, I I figured I'd be strong enough to go into a day of filming. Didn't know how long it would last. I woke up the morning of, and I don't know if it was from traveling, if it was from sleeping in a hotel bed with a hotel pillow and all that 
stuff that comes associated with that. But I woke up the next day and I could barely creak out words. And, and it was funny because I, I didn't say anything to anybody when I woke up. You know, I woke up, took a shower, had to get up early because filming was going to start at 8 a.m. So I got up at 5, uh, even though I was only going from my hotel to another hotel a block away to do some of the filming. But I woke up and, and didn't say anything until I went down to check out. And when I went to check out, that's when I first opened my mouth and said, and the poor woman at the checkout counter was like, uh, uh, sir, I can barely understand you. And I was like, well, if you can barely understand me, I'm screwed for the rest of the day. But we got through it. Uh, we went through the day as best we could. And it took maybe a little bit longer than, uh, than maybe everybody had hoped it would have, uh, about 11 hours or so. But I was able to get through all of the different cases that they wanted me to discuss. So that'll be coming up again early 2020. That's all that I know at this time, but I will let you know as soon as I know more about that. It's called The Scariest Stuff on Earth. It will be airing on the Weather Channel, so that's why I was kind of kidding around and saying that I was going to be the Jim Cantori of the paranormal uh, because, you know, that's the most recognizable Weather Channel personality, and that's the only person that I know on the Weather Channel anyway. So I think it'll be an interesting show because it gets really deep into le- – and again, I can't talk about what we discussed, but I can say that we went beyond the surface of – uh, let's just say if they showed a video, this is an example of a, of, of a light in the sky. They didn't just have me talk about UFOs. We went into the really deep, deep mythology and some of the stories from, from the regions where these would have occurred. So it's it goes beyond just surface level. Oh, that looks like it could be aliens to me. Like, no, this goes really deep and talks about some of the, the different things that would have affected uh, the people that were there on the ground, the people that were living in that area, the people who had lived there historically. So it's it's kind of like, and I hate to make this comparison because Hellier is just so far above what everybody else is doing, but it's almost like they incorporated some elements of Hellier and allowed me to incorporate some elements of, you know, what could be the the bigger picture and, and what could be some of the more out there explanations. They let me kind of work some of that in and, uh, and they had some of that too in, in what they had researched. So I think all together it's going to kind of come together in a very interesting program. So I'll let you know as soon as I know more about that. But if you, I mean, if you hear about it before me, let me know. I don't, I'm not a big weather channel watcher. Even when there's a storm coming, I don't really watch the weather channel. I'll, I'll go online and I'll check an app or a website. You know, I usually use AccuWeather. Or here at the station, we use ABC6. We get uh, customized weather reports from them. And that's how I'll check my weather. But I, uh, from what I understand, the Weather Channel has been offering all kinds of different types of programming. So it's not just weather-related programs anymore. It's, it's kind of stuff all about the, the Earth in general. Uh, so it's, um, it's exciting, but uh, also... You know, it's it's going to be a little while away, so we don't need to talk too much about that. But when we do get into it, I'm hoping that I can get the director, Grace, uh, to join us to preview it when we know that it's going to air. Uh, she was very, very patient with me. And, uh, you know, many times I would I would be speaking and I would be giving, you know, whatever insight that I was giving into this uh, or some of the history of some of the cases or what have you. And... Maybe I'd give them something that was really good, but it would always be right when my voice would cut out, and then I'd have to stop 
and take a drink of water and kind of re-record it again. So it was uh, it was probably a longer day than it needed to be, but it all got done. And then a very interesting side note. You know, those of you who listen to the show, you know I'm a wrestling fan. You know that I did some wrestling ring announcing. I'm now retired from that because House of Bricks is closed up, so I don't have to get beat up anymore. But coming back from Atlanta, I go into the Atlanta airport, and I, I decide to use the restroom before I get on the plane. Always a good idea. You never want to use the restroom on the plane. And I'm waiting, and I'm waiting, and everything. All the urinals are filled. All the all the stalls are filled. Finally, one of the stalls opens up, so I go and I make a beeline to, to get in there. And as I'm walking into the stall, walking out of the stall is WWE superstar Kevin Owens. And I kind of do a double take, and I'm like, hey, Kevin. And he just kind of gives me a nod and like a, hey, what's up, and walks out of there. And, I, you know, of all the times to try to introduce yourself to somebody, walking out of a men's room stall, not a good time to do so. But uh, it was just kind of a little funny, funny anecdote. All right, well, we are going to be talking about Star Trek tonight. Uh, I will welcome anybody to call in with questions related to the topic during the show. 508-996-0500 is the number. You can also jump into the chat room at SpookyTV at SpookySouthCoast.com or right on our YouTube channel, YouTube.com slash SpookySouthCoast. And uh, a lot of you are in there now. I want to say hi to everybody. Uh, Thank you for joining us. I know it's been a few weeks, but it's great to see everybody back together. Uh, The important thing about tonight... I'm not going to be able to really see the chat room throughout the entire discussion because I am flying solo, so I've got to run a bunch of different things. Uh, Plus, I have my notes to look at and everything else, keeping an eye on the phones to see if there's any calls that come in. So I will try and get to the questions as much as I can if they pop up in the chat room. Do me a favor, though. If you have a question in the chat room that you want me to ask, and again, probably the best way to do so tonight is to to call in, but if you can't do that and you need to type it in the chat room, the best way to do that is please use all caps. I know that that's bad internet speak because it means you're yelling at me, but that's okay in this case. It's okay to yell at me tonight because I'm not going to see it otherwise. So if you yell in the chat room, if you use all caps with your question and just, you know, don't do that otherwise. Don't do that unless it's a question that you want me to ask on the air. But if you do that, then I'll hopefully see it and be able to bring it back into the discussion itself. So uh, that would be helping me out tremendously. You can also tweet us at SpookySC, or you can email us SpookyCrew at SpookySouthCoast.com. But the phone is the best way to ask your questions tonight, 508-996-0500. If you need to check out those numbers at any point, you will see them right up at SpookySouthCoast.com, or you can go to WBSM.com as well. And if you need to type it out, please do so in the chat and do so in all caps so that I'll be able to uh, work it all up and work it all into the show. One of the questions that I keep getting asked is uh, what's going to go on with uh, Spooky South Coast events in 2020? Do we have any plans for any upcoming ghost hunts? Uh, We do. Uh, The problem is right now uh, there's a lot of fluctuation in schedule. Uh, So we are really having a hard time pinning down some dates for things, but I'm hoping that uh, coming up in the next month we'll be able to start announcing some things that we have in the works. We would love to get back out and do some investigations. Haven't done any investigations since October uh, when we had a couple of events then. So we'd love to get out there and do some stuff with you. Uh, The usual thing happens in January where uh, all of our bills come due 
all of our streaming bills and all of our website bills and all of our podcasting bills and everything else. So uh, this is the time of year when we need to to kind of raise some funds. So we'll probably try to have an event relatively soon. If anybody would like to make a donation, you can do so via PayPal, Tim at SpookySouthCoast.com. Just go in there and make a donation. Uh, you can do that by sending money to friends and family, and we'll put that money toward toward the show's bills. But, you know, we generally try and be self-sufficient these days. Uh, we, we spent a few years where we would uh, we, we called ourselves the PBS of Paranormal Radio for a while because we'd have a pledge drive every year at the beginning of the year asking folks to, to donate because we do pay for all of this stuff out of our own pocket. Uh, but when, you know, we we are able to put on events and that kind of takes care of things. But uh, it's been a little slow going this year with everybody's schedule. So we wouldn't mind a few donations if you want to make it. If you want to get something back for your money, well, just go to Spooky South Coast, click on the, the .com, click on the store, and we have all kinds of Spooky South Coast merchandise there for sale. Uh, a lot of people sending me photos. They got Spooky South Coast t-shirts for Christmas. So um, we're pretty happy about that. We thank everybody out there who uh, has supported the show over the years, whether it be from donating or even just tuning in and listening and spreading the word. Uh, we think we have a call here. Let's see if we can take it real fast. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast. What's good? Hello. How you been, fellas? How you been, Lamone? Lamone, I'm going to put you on a clock um, because I have a guest calling in on this line in a few moments. Um, well, I'll, all right. Um, next guest I know we need to come to Vegas, uh, the Flower Alley. Uh, next year in March, I mean May, they're going to have uh, Colas call on to put him in Hall of Fame. So yep. maybe that'd be time to come to Vegas. Uh, maybe my, you like know, pretty good. My dad, my dad was talking to me about trying to go out to Vegas. So I was like, well, if I'll go with you, you guys go to Vegas. I'll go to Pahrump and I'll visit KNYE. But oh, uh, if if I go out there, I'll definitely go to Kate. Yeah, I'll definitely look you up if I go out there. Well, I hope I'll talk to you before the play Oh, yeah. Like well, said, we're talking later on in the year. I'll go back to who's guest tonight. Uh, we're going to be talking with Mark Cushman and Vic Mignona about Star Trek. Oh. <laughs> All right, I got something to say about that. I'll call back while they're on the air, okay, Playboy? All right, take it easy. All right, play on player. You this as well. Bye-bye. Yeah, that, uh, that w- that'll be uh, an interesting... Uh, can you imagine that? I, listen, I'm going to make a promise to everybody out there now. Well, I'll make this promise assuming I'll have a good cell signal. But if I go out to Vegas and I hook up with Lamone and we decide to do some crazy stuff out there, I will absolutely live stream it on the Spooky South Coast Facebook page or maybe on my Facebook page. I don't know. It depends on how much I want law enforcement to be able to track us down after the fact. But I think that would be a, that, that'd be a little... Well, at the very least, there'd be witnesses. <laughs> be the best reason to do that. Uh, but we can do that for sure uh, if I head out there. I will absolutely do everything in my power to make sure that we live stream uh, if there's anything going on out there. All right, good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast. Hello there. This is Vic Mignana. Hi, Vic. Great, great to connect with you. Uh, and I'm just going to hold on. I'm going to lock you in so that we don't lose you. All right. No worries. All right, now you are locked in, and we are on the air, and uh, we'll just wait a moment here for for Mark to check in. But before that, well, let's let's just introduce everybody to you. Uh, it's it's Mignona, right? Uh, Mignona, like Min- tomorrow in Spanish. 
Okay, Manana. Vic Manana is a veteran voice actor for more than 300 animated series and video games. He also is a longtime music composer, producer, and performer, and the executive producer of the highly popular web series Star Trek Continues, where he also plays Captain Kirk. And uh, and he joins us tonight on Spooky South Coast. And thank you, Vic, for checking in with us and, and joining joining the program. We're very excited to talk with you about something that I'm guessing is probably pretty near and dear to your heart with Star Trek. Oh, you are definitely correct about that. <laughs> it's a pleasure to join you. Well, how how did you first discover Star Trek? Was it, you know, I think most of us, uh, at least those of us who didn't watch the original series on TV, most of us discovered it through reruns. Is that is that how you found it? Yeah, I was. You're you're exactly right. The show had just gone off the air. Uh, I was uh, seven years old when the show went off the air. And uh, I discovered it when I was nine years old. So it had just gone into syndication. And, uh, and my mom and I had just moved into a little apartment. We had a 19-inch black and white television that sat on the floor in the living room because we didn't even have a table for it. And I would come home every day from school at 5 p.m. and watch Star Trek, the original series. And I fell in love with Captain Kirk and Spock and McCoy and the stories and the Everything about that show just inspired me to basically do things that I'd never done before. Build things, make props, make costumes, wanted to round the kids up in the neighborhood and make little movies, little Star Trek episodes, build models and hang them in front of black poster board and run past them with the camera to make it look like the ship was flying through space. I, uh, I was really inspired. That, that show really jump-started my creativity. And, and uh, I went on to to develop all of those production, acting, creative skills, and then several decades later, decided to create uh, a web series uh, to celebrate and pay tribute to the original series that I loved so much. So it sounds like it wasn't just the the characters and the story and the idea of of having this 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 adventure out in space that drew you. It sounds like the filmmaking aspects of it kind of grabbed you right away as well. Well, I think I think. I learned the filmmaking aspects uh, so that I could tell the stories, so that I could learn how to do what they were doing. Um, I had never acted before in my life, but at 10, 11, 12 years old, I wanted to do what Shatner and Nimoy and, and DeForest Kelly, I wanted to do what they were doing. I wanted to move people the way they moved me. So I started auditioning for school plays and church productions and community theater it was Star Trek, my love of Star Trek, that got me started in acting. And then when I went away to high school and college, I majored in film so that I could learn, you know, how to, all the technical elements of how to do uh, what they were doing. What was probably the, the, can you remember the first episode of Star Trek that you watched? Or, or, or... I do. As a matter of fact, it's funny you should ask. I remember the first episode I saw was a third season episode called The Tholian Web. Oh, yeah. And you know what's really special about that is that fast forward to our series, Star Trek Continues, and a few years back, I was contacted by Judy Burns, who wrote The Tholian Web. And she told me that she had a sequel idea, and she loved our series and, uh, and wanted to pitch this idea and we went on to make that episode it was our eighth episode still treads the shadow and uh it was written by judy burns who wrote the tholian web 
it's so funny that that's the episode that that drew you in because when I was, I think I turned 11, 11 or 12, uh, my dad, for my birthday, is one of my gifts. He, he gave me this, you know, video cassette shaped package and I unwrapped it and I opened it up and it was, it was Star Trek and it was that episode, the Tholian oh Web. Oh my gosh, that's great. And it was, you know how they started, like they, they would put them out as VHS that you could order and you get like one episode yeah. a month or whatever. He just got me the one episode because he's like, I don't know if you're going to like this. I don't know if there's something you're into, but I used to watch it when I was younger and I thought you'd want to check it out. And so that was also the, the episode that first drew me in as well. Oh, that's amazing. And you know what? When I fell in love with Star Trek, there were no video cassettes. We're talking, you know, 70, 71, 72. And, uh, and I used to take an, a cassette recorder. I had a, a portable cassette recorder, and I would sit it beside the television speaker and record the episodes on audio cassette. And then I would put the cassette player under my pillow at night and listen to episodes as I went to sleep. And consequently, as you can imagine, I literally memorized the episodes word for word, sound effect for sound effect, music cue for music cue. I had a trumpet case that I had, I took the trumpet out of and I seg I partitioned it up into three uh, segments and it was for the three seasons of Star Trek. And that trumpet case is still in my mother's attic today uh, with all of those cassettes, with my little scribblings of the name of the episodes on the cassettes. Wow. Now, now, you said, you know, you would watch it after school. Was this was it on every weekday? Is that how they used to air it then? It was. It was on WIIC in Pittsburgh, Channel 11, every day. And uh, and I would come home, uh, get home from school around 3.30 or 4 and do whatever homework I could do and then lay down on the floor at 5 p.m. and set my cassette player up and record the episodes. And, you know, that when the models came out, you know, whether it was the Enterprise model or the bridge or... Remember that model of Mr. Spock firing a phaser at the three-headed lizard? Oh, yeah. I, you know, had all those things. I had the Miko action figures. Um, I was, my mother would tell you, I was obsessed. But in a good way. Like I said, it really inspired me to do a lot of the things that I do professionally today. And uh, about six years ago, I, I wanted to make... I had worked with some other Star Trek fan productions, and they, they left me walking away thinking, you know, this could be done so much better. Um, if, if, if somebody who actually knew how to shoot, how to light, how to edit, uh, how to act, how to write a good story, how to choose just the right music cues, all of the elements of production, if somebody were able to do that, they could do it at a much higher level. And so... That's what I set out to do with Star Trek Continues. We made one episode that I funded and uh, with a friend of mine, Stephen Dangler. And after we made that episode, we released it, not really knowing if anyone would like it or not, but people really responded to it. And so from that point on, we launched crowdfunding campaigns to make the other 10 episodes. And for, for your, your listeners that don't know, our series picks up right where the original series was canceled, and it finishes the five-year mission of the Enterprise. Wow. Our, our two-part finale ends right where the motion picture begins. 
That's that's amazing. And, and those stories must have been building up in you over the years, though, because, you know, as you mentioned, watching it every day after school, only three seasons, you know, it's going to it's not going to take that long to go through them all and rerun. So you're going to see the same episodes over and over and over again. So, you know, you must have been thirsting for new adventures. So you're you're making them up in your mind. You had all that time to kind of put together some of these stories. Well, that's true. But also not only that, but, you know, when you're talking about a Star Trek, especially classic Star Trek, when you're talking about a Star Trek story, what made the original series so unique and still so topical today is that they told morality plays. You know what I mean? They told stories that had a theme. They had a message. They had a, a point to make. They had a, a lesson to tell. They had a, a social issue to address. Um, and they did it in an imaginative, uh, creative story uh, in a setting that was, you know, original and, and, and sci-fi. Um, that's how Roddenberry got away with telling a lot of the stories that he told was by couching them in these imaginative uh, stories off other worlds. So I've seen a lot, like I said, I've seen a lot of other Star Trek fan productions, and most fan productions are limited to, uh, you know, we beam down and we flipped open communicators and we we uh, we fired phasers and we did all the kind of the fan things, but when it comes to to really writing a topical story like Star Trek, like the original series stories, you're really setting the bar very high. And uh, fortunately, myself and I had several other really great people like James Kerwin and uh, Rob Sawyer, uh, Lisa Hansel, Ralph Miller, James um, um, Matt Busey. Several people that worked together to find, to, to dig up really cool ideas and write stories that made you feel like you were watching episodes that were locked in a vault somewhere for 50 years. And that's where it becomes hard, I think, for a lot of the writers who came on to some of the other Star Trek projects in the years that followed. I think it was kind of hard for them to find that same voice that Gene Roddenberry had in the original series of of looking to take these issues of the day and kind of mask them in other ways. You know, it almost became that the, the universe of Star Trek grew so much that there were so many other stories to serve. But when you're talking about the, the Enterprise crew on their original mission, you can kind of focus on the dynamic of that crew, the people that yeah. made it up, and, and the way that those morality lessons would, inter, would, would, would come into play when they would interact with other species. Yes, and it wasn't just social issues. It was issues like... Um uh, for me, like for our series, it wasn't just social issues like slavery or sex trafficking or, or racism or immigration, but it was also concepts of, of self-sacrifice, concepts of, uh, of selflessness, uh, concepts of um, courage, uh, noble, let's put it that way, the more nobler qualities of humanity. Uh, not the, you know, not the darker underbelly and the seedy dystopian sci-fi stuff, but, but much more noble uh, virtues and things that you would watch and it would inspire you to be a better person. You know, we have no shortage of media today that drags our morality down, that it, it literally appeals to our baser instincts. So one of the things that I loved about classic Star Trek and that I tried to capture in my series was the more noble 
uh, elements and virtues of humanity. And you can tell that it's done in a different way because if you look at some of the series of today, okay, so uh, one of the big series that just came out recently was Watchmen on HBO. Very overt themes that reflect the times of today. Very yeah. overt connections to what's going on in the world. And people, some people, a lot of people kind of turned against the show because of it. You know, they, they said, ah, this, this show is too political. I'm trying to escape everything. And this show is trying to talk to me about the same thing I would have seen if I watched CNN. But with, <laughs> with Star Trek, they did the same thing, but they did it in a way where the storytelling was so good and where you cared so much about the characters that it, it, it didn't become preachy. It, it didn't become like that. It became... Yeah. You know, it just became a way, you didn't even know you were walking away with this with a lesson. Exactly. And you know what we did with our series, and I think the original series uh, really created the blueprint for this. We didn't treat the audience like they were stupid. The original series appealed to the intellect of the audience, and it didn't necessarily bang you over the head with one particular viewpoint, which is all too common in today's media. Whoever's producing a show or directing a show is, like you said, beating you over the head with their politics or their philosophies. But what Star Trek would do and what we did with Star Trek Continues was we would write a story where we would present both sides of a very complex issue. We would have people that represented voices on both sides of the issue, and then we would present them respectfully and intellectually and let the audience, let the viewer use their own noodle and decide what they think is right, what they believe. Um, and I think that was part of the magic of Star Trek. It really was. And I guess part of it is you can say, you know, maybe because we believed in the same topics and, and the same perspective and point of view that Star Trek had, that we can look at it as being this... this um, uh, just kind of this positive force. But I think, I really can't think anybody would walk away from Star Trek being against the moral lessons that it was trying to teach. You can be against the moral lessons that, you know, Watchmen or some of these more modern series are trying to teach you, but you're not going to be against what you see in Star Trek. It's just, it's the basic outline of it, of the whole thing. It's just be a good person and be a good yeah, that, member of the universe. That makes very good sense. You're exactly right. You know, one of our, all of our episodes, we tried to follow that formula, but our ninth episode in particular comes to mind because it was, a, it was an immigration kind of story. Um, it was topical, obviously, but in the writing of the story, we, we had people on both sides of the issue, and they presented very, very compelling arguments for why they had the position they had. So, you know, rather than one person saying, you know, uh, open borders is wrong, the end, you have to believe what I believe or you're a moron, instead of taking that kind of a hard-nosed, heavy-handed uh, position, somebody on the other side would say, well, look, here's the reasons why we have, you know, the, the beliefs that we do and the laws that we do, and it makes good sense. So it appeals to you intellectually. And you come, maybe even hopefully you walk away understanding a little more both sides of some of these very complex issues. And so uh, just real quick, uh, before we get into the discussion with Mark, how can people find Star Trek Continues? 
just that easy. StarTrekContinues.com. Uh, we have 11 full-length episodes, and here's the best part. It's all free. Uh, we made this not from – we didn't make this to make a penny from it. We didn't make it for any profit. We made it to um, – whoa. We, uh, we made it to, um, to celebrate and pay tribute to this series that we loved so much. So there are 11 full-length episodes. We've got over 10 million viewers. Uh, now, and uh, uh, we've won over a dozen awards. Uh, it's a great cast, a great crew. We've got a lot of amazing guest stars in every episode, and uh, it's all available for free to watch, including behind the scenes, making of, blooper videos, all kinds of wonderful stuff. It's all free at StarTrekContinues.com. Well, we'll talk more about Star Trek Continues uh, throughout the course of the night, but let's bring in now our other guest, Mark Cushman. He's an author, an L.A.-based screenwriter and director. His television writing assignments include scripts for Star Trek The Next Generation, Beyond Belief, Factor Fiction, and Diagnosis Murder. His feature film credits include Desperately Seeking Paul McCartney, The Magic of Christmas, and In the Eyes of a Killer. So we'll talk to him about that and some of his other work as well. Mark Cushman, good evening. Hi, Tim. How are you? We are doing well. I'm just going to lock you in here so I don't drop you by accident. All right. We've been talking a little bit with Vic about Star Trek, but I'd like to get some of uh, your thoughts as well. Um, and I'm going to start with the same question. How did you happen upon the world of Star Trek? Well, that was way back in uh, 1967 uh, when I caught uh, the reruns for the first season on NBC. And I was about 10. And everybody at school was talking about Star Trek but I lived up on a dairy farm in Oregon, and we couldn't get the NBC affiliate during the winter and the fall. But it would kind of fizzle in during the, um, the uh, summer months. And so the first episode I saw was the repeat of The Devil in the Dark, the one about the Horta. And I was hooked instantly. And uh, many, many years later, uh, I met Gene Roddenberry and uh, did some work for him. And then when uh, Next Generation went on, he brought me in, and I uh, pitched some stories to them. Uh, one of them was Sarek, which was in the early part of the third season, uh, where we see Spock's father uh, on Next Generation, which was the first episode that really tied the first two shows together. And um, uh, I talked to Gene at that time about, actually a little bit earlier, uh, about um, uh, if he had saved all the files to all the episodes, because I always loved a book called The Making of Star Trek, came out in 1968 while the show was in production and uh, it mostly focused on the pilots and getting the show started and i said did you keep those kind of records for all the episodes and he did and he showed me 40 something big boxes filled with tens of thousands of memos and production schedules and scripts and everything uh and so um he allowed me to uh access all that material and uh, i created this three volume book set these are the voyages, season one, two, and three, and each chapter's got about twenty pages with a lot of these memos in there, and the productions, and the budgets, and the. Um, I interviewed everybody, so they all tell the story either through the interviews I got or better from the actual memos when they were doing the show, and we also licensed all the Nielsen ratings for every single episode, breaking a lot of the folklore about uh, the ratings on Star Trek. Uh, it did very respectably on NBC. But NBC didn't like the show. They didn't like Gene Roddenberry. They were fighting about stories. And that what, that's what led it to being moved to different time slots, worse time slots, 
finally the death slot during its third year when it was canceled. And so that's what it was. It came down to the the stories that Roddenberry was trying to tell, and that's that's why NBC wanted to kill the show. Yeah, it, w- it was a big fight because uh, Gene wanted to do stories about Vietnam, about sexism, racism, God, uh, religions of all kind, and uh, you didn't do that back then on primetime entertainment television. And the memos are so dramatic, the fights between him and NBC over these episodes. And uh, the ratings are in the first season when it was on Thursday nights from 8.30 to 9.30. It uh, quite often won its time slot. It was NBC's highest rated show of the night. They almost canceled it. Uh, a letter writing campaign kicked in, so they renewed it. They put it on Friday nights. Not a great night for Star Trek. All the kids and all the teenagers are, the kids are in bed. The teenagers are out. The college kids are out. So the ratings dropped down, but it was still NBC's top-rated Friday night show. They tried to cancel it again. They got a million protest letters, so they pushed it to the death slot, 10 to 11 Fridays. And the opening episode, uh, Spock's brain, not a favorite of most Star Trek fans, won its time slot against uh, Judd for the Defense, which was the Emmy-winning show from the previous year, Best Dramatic Series, and the two-hour premiere of Hawaii Five-0, which ran for 12 years. The ratings did come down during the third season because of that terrible time slot. But uh, the folklore began that NBC canceled it just because of the ratings. That's not the case. They did come down towards the end. But in the first couple years, it was winning their time slots for the network. It also explains why all the letter-writing campaigns didn't work either. Yeah, well, they, they, they did work for the first and second year. The third season, NBC was prepared. Because they'd gotten a million letters and petitions the previous year, embarrassed them, they had to pick it up. And because how do you explain to your stockholders that we're canceling the top-rated show of the night? So they put it in that killer slot, and uh, and then they prepared for the write-in at the end of the third season, and they sent out form letters to deceive the fans. They took it off in February of '69. And they were going to put it back on later in the summer for 12 repeats. So when all the fans started writing in saying, please don't cancel this, they sent out a form letter saying, don't worry, Star Trek will be returning to the NBC schedule, which was not a lie, but it was deceptive. And that kind of tapered off the write-ins. It was still a very strong writing campaign at the end of the third year, but it deflected it enough where they were able to get rid of the show. Two years later, NBC wanted it back in prime time because the reruns were killing them. I was going to say, yeah, wasn't wasn't there a, a, a movement toward a second series uh, very early on after the rerun started? Yeah. Uh, throughout the 1970s, I just did a, a book series. The first volume's out. The second one comes out in a few months. And uh, it's Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek in the 1970s. And it shows that entire groundswell that was coming up during the 1970s as Star Trek was gaining even more popularity in reruns. And... Uh, uh, and all the protests that were going on, the conventions started up, everything was happening. And everybody was wondering, why don't we have Star Trek back in prime time? It's on five nights a week in every city across the country, winning its time slots. Why isn't it on the network? Well, the network wanted it back. Two years after they canceled, NBC was begging Paramount to give it back to them. And those memos are in these books, and you see all that action going on. But Paramount did not want to put it back into production because, first... The ratings were doing so well in the reruns, they didn't want to risk turning that apple cart over. You know, they thought, hey, if we start making new episodes, it may drop, the, the bottom may drop out of the rerun package. The second reason 
was they had torn down all the sets, destroyed all the props, all the costumes. They'd given the giant 12-foot Enterprise miniature to the Smithsonian Institute and the Klingon ship. And so they knew it was going to cost a fortune to rebuild all this stuff. So they told NBC, if you want the show back, we have to have a one, maybe even a two-year commitment from you. And the network wanted the show back, but they weren't willing to give that commitment, not until 1977 when they started uh, putting together Phase 2, which became Star Trek, the motion picture. At that point, NBC said, we'll give you a year's commitment. And they said, no, we're going to use it to launch a fourth network. That didn't happen, but we got the movie. Well, I do want to dig into some of that, too. Uh, we have a, a few minutes here before we'll have to take a break for the news, but uh, in the second hour, we can really do a deep dive into a lot of this stuff because the I only recently discovered all the information about Phase 2 and about um, the, you know trying to launch that Paramount Network and the way they were going to try to put everything together. And then, from what I understand, the original movie wasn't even... That was supposed to be the plot for the series, but the original plan that Roddenberry wanted to explore for motion picture was actually, what, Star Trek VI, and to explore the, the God question uh-huh. in the first movie coming out. And they said, ah, we don't know if we can do that. And then they did yeah. it anyway, really. They brought him in in 1975, Paramount, and he wrote a script that is commonly known now as The God Thing. It was just called Star Trek II, but it was later uh, published as a paperback called The God Thing. And uh, Paramount didn't want to do it. They were afraid it would offend a lot of people of certain religions. And so they, made, they rejected his script. He wrote a second script. They rejected it with a form letter. And then they started hiring all these other writers to write a movie. I mean, they treated Gene Roddenberry terribly. And uh, so by 1977, uh, they had not found a script that they were happy with. And so they said, let's just do it as a TV show. And that was phase two. And they were days away from filming. They had already had 12, 13 episodes written, plus a two-hour premiere episode called In Thy Image. And uh, that became Star Trek The Motion Picture. And the reason the, uh, the, the new series didn't get on the air, Vic ended up doing it. (laughs) for Star Trek continues. But the reason it didn't get on the air back then was because they were trying to use it as the flagship to sell a fourth network. And everybody wanted Star Trek. They had 180 affiliates across the United States, more than NBC had, willing to take the new Star Trek series. Everyone wanted it, but they didn't want the rest of the programming Paramount was trying to put together. So they had already invested all this money rebuilding the sets, buying scripts, uh, signing all the actors to contracts, and they said, and Star Wars came out right at that moment, and they said, you know what, let's just grab this two-hour premiere episode and make it as a movie. And that became Star Trek The Motion Picture. Well, we can talk more about that uh, coming up, but it just uh, in the couple minutes we have left here, Vic, as a fan growing up, I mean, did you hear about some of this stuff happening and about some of these uh, wheels that were in motion before the, the, picture, yeah, the motion picture came out? No, I didn't. And first of all, hi, Mark. Hi, Vic. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did not. I did not know about much of that until uh, until Star Trek The Motion Picture came out. Um, and then uh, that was when I started hearing rumblings of, of their head, you know, how there was supposed to be a, a new TV series that ended up not happening, and they decided to go with the theatrical uh, release instead. Um, but no, I did not know about a lot of that. Um, I didn't know why the show was canceled. You know, in reading the, the audiobook, which I know we're going to get into in a bit, um, you know, I learned so much about 
the making of the show and not just that, but the challenges of making the show. And, you know, one thing that Mark didn't get a chance to mention yet, but not only did the network not like Roddenberry and the way he was pushing uh, ideals and uh, social issues and stuff, but the, the series cost so much money to make. Um, it was, they were regularly over budget, and uh, even uh, Lucy, Lucy, who owned the studio at the time, uh, her, her uh, board of directors told her, don't make this, don't make this show, Lucy, it's going to bankrupt you. It'll, it'll, it'll bank up your studio. But Lucy was determined to come up with something new and fresh, something that had not been done before, something that wasn't a police show or a Western, which was basically most of what was on television at the time. Or a sitcom, which is what Desilu was known for making. Right, exactly. And so she pressed forward with Star Trek, and it was so costly to make. Uh, if, you think, if you just think about the logistics of not only the special effect shots required with spaceships and phasers and stuff and beaming down that no cowboy western would ever need, but also every week they're going to a different planet or right. a different species <laughs> or a different uh, you know, world where they've got different ships and costumes and sets, and it was just terribly expensive to make. Well, we'll talk more about that coming up in the next hour. We'll also talk more about the individual work of Mark and Vic, and we'll talk about the project that they've been working on together as well. We'll also open up the phone lines a little bit later on for Star Trek questions from the audience at 508-996-0500-877-996-1420 if you would like to call in. That's the best way to reach us with any questions tonight. Of course, you can also join us in the chat room on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com and on YouTube. But if you have a, a question that you want to ask, there please try and put it all in capital letters uh, because i'm the only one monitoring the chat room while i'm running everything else tonight so <laughs> i want to try and see that as much as we can you know you can also you know use the you know if you want to do it the other way you can do it with email that's a good way to do it tim at spooky com. i'll make sure that i try and check that as much as i can through the show as well all right we are going to take a break we'll come back with more with mark cushman and vic manana as we talk more about star trek here on spooky south coast Are you intrigued by Paranormal Talk Radio? You'll love the new Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live. You'll find a great selection of talk shows covering UFOs, ghosts, strange phenomena, and much more. Download the Paranormal Radio app now and start listening to the very best in Paranormal Talk Entertainment. The Paranormal Radio app, free in Google Play and the iOS App Store. Welcome back. Our number two of Spooky South Coast, Tim Weisberg here with you. No silent assassin, Matt Costa. No science advisor, Matt Moniz. No psychic medium, Stephanie Burke. Just myself tonight, as we are joined by our guests, Mark Cushman and Vic Mignana. We are talking about Star Trek tonight. 
They are both involved in the world of Star Trek. Mark is an author and a script a screenwriter who worked on Star Trek The Next Generation. Uh, and also, Vic has a web series called Star Trek Continues, which you can check out online. Uh, as we were discussing in the first hour, it picks up where the original series leaves off and continues the rest of that five-year mission before we get to Star Trek The Motion Picture. And we were actually discussing, right before the news break there, we were talking about the period of time when it looked like Star Trek was trying to come back as a series with the Phase 2 project. And and, uh, and Mark, we were talking a little bit about that. Just for people's um, edification, what was the idea behind that series? It was going to be very similar to what to what uh, Vic series is all about. Almost identical. Uh, they were actually using a slightly modified version of the uniforms from the original show. Uh, the ship was pretty much the same. Uh, the bridge had a little more new stuff on it, uh, plus two turbolifts. Uh, engineering was expanded. Uh, they had everybody coming back except Leonard Nimoy, and they had a new Vulcan, a young Vulcan, who was going to be in his place. And uh, everyone was signed up. They had a 13 scripts written, a two-hour premiere episode, and they were days away from beginning filming when uh, the plug was pulled because Paramount was having trouble selling their fourth network. They weren't having trouble selling Star Trek. They had 180-plus affiliates that wanted to pick it up. They just didn't want the other programming. So that two-hour movie became Star Trek, the motion picture. What, what, what was the uh, decision behind Leonard Nimoy not coming back? He wasn't available. Uh, he wanted to do it, and there was a lot of nasty rumors going around that he was dismissing Star Trek because he had put out a book called I Am Not Spock, which was not anti-Star Trek at all. It was him talking to the character of Star uh, Spock through most of the book, and, and lo- the things he had learned from Spock and taken into himself as an actor and so forth. But because of that book coming out and the fact that he wasn't going to be part of the, uh, the show, everybody thought that he didn't want to play Spock again. That was not true. He was actually doing a play in New York on Broadway, which prevented him from being available when they were going to start filming. And he was also under contract to do uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers with Donald Sutherland. So that was not going to allow him to do it. Now, when the TV series was canceled, when it didn't go forward, and they decided to take that two-hour premiere episode, make it into a movie, that pushed it back a few months, and that allowed Nimoy to come aboard. Now, Vic, were you aware of Phase 2 when you came up with the idea for Star Trek Continues? Well, I mean, sure, I knew about Phase 2, uh, you know, back, like I said, I heard about it for the first time back when Star Trek The Motion Picture came out. We're talking about, what, 79? Um, Ten years after the original series was canceled. But, I mean, that was, you know, that was... But, I mean, did you did you know what they were thinking about doing with the storyline that, you no, know... No, 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 I didn't. So... No, in fact, no, I, in fact, my, my idea for Star Trek Continues was that uh, the original series never got a proper ending. The original series began, as you know, every week, every, every episode, uh, Cap- Captain Kirk would say, these are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission. Mm-hmm. Well, they didn't have a five-year mission. They were canceled in their third television season. And then the next time anyone saw those characters again was Star Trek The Motion Picture ten years later. By then... The uniforms have changed. Kirk's become an admiral. He's taken a promotion. Spock has gone back to Vulcan. Everyone's gone their own separate ways. So my idea was, let's fin- let's pick it up right where it was canceled, and and tell 
stories, craft a story for these characters that explains why everyone is where they are when the motion picture begins. Return the Enterprise to Earth, explain why the Enterprise goes into dry dock, why does Spock go back to Vulcan, why does Kirk, who loves his ship more than anything, why would he ever accept a promotion and a desk job? Yeah. So to and me, that, these your were all compelling episode, stories. Uh, what Vic did before told. then was he did what would have been the fourth and fifth season. Uh, exactly. S- sample it exactly. with 11 episodes, and then he had this two-part finale, which takes them back to Earth at the end of the five-year mission, and that sets the stage for Star Trek The Motion Picture. Uh, Mark, did, in your work with Gene Roddenberry, did you ever ask him why it was originally set out to be a five-year mission? Absolutely. And uh, John D.F. Black confirmed this. Uh, he was the associate producer on the first year. Uh, when he, when John D.F. Black and Gene Roddenberry wrote the opening narration, and it was John who came up with uh, Space, the Final Frontier, they said five years because they were hoping for a five-year run on the network, which would give them enough episode for a good, strong rerun package. So it worked out anyway, though. I think the, rerun, <laughs> the reruns worked out even without five years. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, back back then they thought you needed 100-plus episodes. Well, we got 79. Uh, but Star Trek was so popular, uh, and people loved it so much. It, it, part of this new book series that I've done that covers the 1970s is reading the, the uh, press that was coming out during that period, and they kept comparing it to Beatlemania. They could not believe that, that people were watching these episodes three, four, five, six, seven times and counting. And, and loving them more and more each time they watched them. It got stronger and stronger, which, you know, you got to give some credit to Lucille Ball, as Vic was saying right. earlier. You know, she, she told her board of directors, bring me a show that we can own, like I Love Lucy, which is what built Desi Lou. And they were filming all these other shows for other production companies, like the Andy Griffith Show, Dick Van Dyke, uh, Danny Thomas, and so on. But they didn't own those shows. She wanted to own a show that she could put into reruns for 10 years. And I Love Lucy at that point had been rerunning for about 10 years. And uh, they brought her Star Trek. And she believed in it. So even as Vic mentioned, when the board of directors was saying, no, 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 don't do it. It's going to be too expensive. It'll kill us. It'll bankrupt us. She stuck by it. And it did bankrupt them. And that's why halfway through the second season, uh, Lucy had to sell Desi Lou to Paramount Pictures. And when Paramount came in, they cut the budgets. And that's why the third season doesn't stand up as well to the first and second. Lots of good episodes. One of Vic's favorites is from the, uh, the third year. But, but they didn't have the budget, so they couldn't have the guest stars. They couldn't have as many days to sh- film the shows and so forth. So you do see yeah. a little drop in quality, but they were still trying the best they could. Now, I heard a rumor, and I could never find anything to kind of uh, substantiate this. Maybe maybe you guys know a little bit more about this. But I heard that Desilu told the, the independent stations that weren't really necessarily sold on Star Trek reruns because it was such a short syndication package. I, I heard a rumor that in order to get the I Love Lucy reruns, they had to take Star Trek as well. No, that's not true. Okay. There's a lot of folklore out there about Star Trek. Um, it, uh, they didn't have any problem selling it in syndication. Because the ratings were, as I said, much better than what we had been led to believe. Uh, back then, you didn't publish the ratings routinely in trade magazines and so forth. They might list the top ten shows. It was like just maybe twice a year during sweeps that uh, broadcasting magazine or variety might print the entire lineup. But Star Trek was right in the middle. It wasn't at the bottom. 
And even though it was in the middle out of 90 TV, uh, primetime TV shows, it was the top-rated show on NBC on the nights they were showing it. A network does not cancel their top-rated show. That's the one you keep. But they t- kept trying to get rid of it because of the script problems they were having. I mean, think of one in particular that some of your listeners may remember, The Enemy Within, from the first season, where a, a transporter malfunction splits Kirk into two, and one is the intellect and the other is the primal side. And the primal Kirk tries to rape his yeoman. He pins her to the ground. He's on top of her. She has to scratch his face to get him off of her. And NBC was very concerned about that script, and Roddenberry promised them in these memos that we published in the book, and you can read them, is that, uh, and, and Vic reads them in, uh, uh, in the audiobook, uh, along with his cast of 80. Uh, they, they told Stan Robertson and NBC, no, 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 it's not going to be a rape. He's just getting frisky with her. He's just being forward with her. Well, anyone who's seen that episode, that's an attempted rape all the way. And what happened is during the first half hour of that episode, it was winning its time slot, as it often did. And right when that attempted rape took place, it dropped to number three for the rest of the hour. And there's a memo in that particular chapter in the first season book where NBC writes to Gene Roddenberry and says, we will not rerun this episode. Don't you ever do this to us again. Well, it was those type of fights that caused the friction between Gene Roddenberry and NBC. And it wasn't just, we talked a little bit about this with Vic uh, before you joined us, Mark, but it w- wasn't just, you know, some of the controversial things that they were pushing and some of the controversial themes and trying to tackle the Vietnam War and racism and things like that. Star Trek just tried to be a little bit more forward thinking, and some of that forward thinking was shaking up middle America. I mean, not we could talk all day about the interracial kiss, but just having crew members in miniskirts was, was scandalous enough in some parts of the country. That was America's first look at the micro-mini. Or even the regular mini. Uh, the mini skirt came out in the summer of 1966 in England, in London. We hadn't seen it over here. So when Star Trek premiered in September of 1966, nobody had ever seen that much leg on, on network TV unless you were watching the Jackie Gleason show with the June Taylor dancers. Uh, you know, so it was really a very sexy show, a very controversial show, and a very challenging show in every way that you can imagine. And, and that was just went against the grain of what the networks were willing to show back then. And it was also portraying women in a different way than we'd seen them before. You know, they weren't housewives and, and they weren't secretaries. You know, these the women that were involved in, in, in the crew of the Enterprise were equal to the men. I mean, obviously, obviously everybody has their own rank, but still there was no differentiation between men and women when it came to, um, you know, just how much of a, of a say they had in things. That's right. You know, it was just one year before Star Trek that I Spy went on NBC, and that was the first show to have a white and a black actor cast on equal status, and a black actor playing a non-stereotypical role. Before that, we had, what, Rochester on the Jack Benny show, and we had Amos and Andy, and we had Beulah, uh, which was a sitcom like Hazel, but it was a black maid working for rich white people. And, and so Star Trek gave us uh, an Asian helmsman, it gave us a Russian uh, uh, navigator, it gave us a black communication officer, it gave us a Vulcan uh, science officer, and on and on, and put women in, into these command positions. Matter of fact, in the first pilot, uh, uh, Majel Barrett played number one, who was the second uh, officer, uh, the first officer, but the second in command of the, the Enterprise, and NBC didn't want that. So she ended up becoming Nurse Chapel in the, in the TV show. 
it, it seems to me, I mean, I've had the opportunity to meet some of the, the cast members from the original series uh, through my work at Rhode Island Comic Con, and it seems to me like they understand now the impact that Star Trek had on the rest of the country. Yeah. Were they, were they experiencing that as it aired? Did they understand that they were oh, part yeah. of this important work? Oh, yeah. Uh, Gene knew he was doing something nobody had ever done. He had produced a show before that called The Lieutenant, and he did an episode uh, called, um, oh, God, what was the name of it? I can't remember the episode, but uh, it, it dealt with racism in the U.S. military, and NBC refused to air it. They ended up, they did air it, uh, which the Internet gets wrong, but it did air because Gene called uh, civil rights groups, and they, they picketed NBC and forced the network to put it on, but then NBC canceled the show. So he wanted to do a show where he could tell those kind of stories and show an interracial crew and show equal se- uh, sex and everything else uh, on Star Trek. They knew they were doing something nobody else had done. Uh, we just lost Dorothy Fontana a couple weeks ago, uh, D.C. Fontana. She had to use the, the initials D.C. because no women were writing that kind of stuff. Uh, action adventure, science fiction back then, and so she had to use her initials to get scripts sold. Uh, but they all knew it was so unique, and I also have in these books a lot of the fan letters that were coming in in 1966 and 67 and 68 and 69, and you just see people blown away by this show and what it was doing. And then from the uh, memos from the network, you see how they were threatened, because they're getting letters from other people who don't want to see that. And Vic, how do you try to keep that spirit alive when you when you start putting out Star Trek Continues? How do you look at what Gene Roddenberry and his writers were able to do and say, now I want to be able to apply that to my series as well? Well, I think, you know, when I watched the show, I just, I absorbed, I just absorbed it. You know what I mean? I, I took it in and I thought about it and I quoted it and I, I reflected on it and, uh, you know, I know that a lot of people out there had the same feeling about it I did. I mean, it affected them exactly the same way it affected me. Um, and and so when I, like I said, when I when I wanted to make this web series, I knew that there were a lot of other web series and a lot of other fan-driven uh, productions that had been made. But I I set the bar at telling really compelling stories. And if you want to tell really compelling, thought-provoking stories, you have to have a good script. And if you have a good script, you have to have good actors to be able to communicate that script. Um, there are any number of places along the way where the, where the, uh, the production can kind of suffer, you know, where it can kind of break down. But, um, but we had so many great people working with Star Trek Continues, people that not only loved what they did, and not only did they love Star Trek, but they were experts in their fields. They were, uh, they were very qualified camera operators or lighting people or uh, prop people or wardrobe people or writers. And what we all had in common was a very, very great passion for the spirit of the original series. You know, something else, Tim is, uh, I've said this before uh, in interviews, and it's absolutely true. In all the years that I was uh, writing scripts and going in for pitch meetings at different TV shows and so forth, no producer ever asked me what the theme of my story was. 
you know, you just kind of pitch a hook to them, and they say, oh, I like that, go do it. Uh, when I pitched to Gene Roddenberry uh, and pitched Sarak to him, he loved the idea of a story about a Vulcan going through senility, but then he said, but what's the theme? And fortunately, I had one, and I was able to talk to him about that. But that's also in all these memos, is you see them talking about what is this particular episode about? What are we trying to communicate to the audience? And that's one of the things that keeps Star Trek alive to this day. It's an excellent cast. It was state-of-the-art production for its time. Uh, they're great stories, but they have a great theme, a great message. And, the, and, and all the years that I was doing this, he was the only one who ever asked me that. And I saw that he asked every single writer that same question. And then finally, all these years later, I found another producer who asked me that question. And you're talking to him, Vic Mignogna. <laughs> I was going to say, that's exactly what I, you know, that's what I asked. Them. When we started our series, Tim, we had dozens and dozens of people um, who, uh, who submitted ideas. And, you know, if you get two or three pages into a, a script and you still don't know what in the world it's about, it's probably not a good script. Right. And, and, uh, so I started when people would say I have an idea or I have a script, I would say, well, don't send me a script. Send me one page and tell me what it's about. What's the theme? What's the point? What are you trying to say? Um, and we had probably over a hundred script submissions during our five year run. Ironically, we had a five year mission of our own and, uh, and almost all of them didn't really have a message. They were, you know, Captain Kirk beams down to the planet and he fights the Klingons. And, you know, it, it was just, it, they were just very shallow. Um, so, like I said, whenever you decide that you want to create a classic Star Trek type story, you're setting very high. Absolutely. Hey, <clears throat> by the way, Tim, I'd, I'd love to go back. I'd love to go back and... and and chime in on something you were talking about a minute ago. Sure. Um, you were talking about the, how the original series of Star Trek uh, cast women in, uh, in equal roles to men and how groundbreaking that was. And you're right. It, it did. It, it, it broke new ground and was revolutionary in that way. And it's ironic, isn't it, that in our day and age, in today's culture, in the culture we are living in right now, people look at the original series and like, oh, it's so sexist, and, and the women, you know, Captain Kirk, you know, is always making out with different women, and, you know, and they're all wearing short skirts, and it's so sexist. It's really interesting, isn't it, that this show that did such amazing, huge strides for, for women... Uh, is now, on, you know, when you put it under the microscope of, of some of the culture today, you know, they, they find terrible fault with the fact that the women wore miniskirts or, you know, the, the men protected the women or, uh, or that Kirk, you know, would kiss, you know, different women on different, you know, almost every other episode. It was really a sexually free that they, that show. They such it was very ground unusual back then. And, it was ahead of its and time. And i got to tell you something about what this was just, just saying. Was, was, it was not Gene Roddenberry's idea that they wear miniskirts or the costume director. If you look at the pilots, they're wearing slacks, the women. 
And yep. uh, and what ha- it wasn't until the Corbett Eye Maneuver, the first episode of the regular series, where you saw the miniskirt. It was Grace Lee Whitney who played Yeoman Ran, who said, I don't want to wear those pants. Can I wear a skirt? And Nichelle Nichols said the same thing. And so they gave them these skirts, and, and Grace and uh, Nichelle were both dancers, and they had great legs, and they both kept sneaking their skirts up when they would sit down <laughs> to see which one of them could show more leg. It was the women who brought those miniskirts into the show. Well, and, and that's the other thing, too, is people forget that, yeah, as much as Star Trek was trying to be forward-thinking for women and, and, and the roles that it saw them playing in, in a future world, you're also still talking to an audience of the 60s, too. And you're also still going to have to play into some of the tropes that they expect to find on a television show airing in the late 1960s. Yeah. And I, and I have a prediction. In 10 years, 20 years, you're going to see that kind of dress again. You know, everything goes in cycles. And so right now you have the whole politically correct movements that are trying to snuff all this stuff out and make us all be very much alike, unisex and everything else. Uh, but you're, it, the pendulum's going to swing the other way in time because uh, the next generation always has to rebel against the previous generation. So anyone who thinks that, hey, we're changing the world and we're never going to go back to this, don't believe it. So why don't we try to take a few calls here? I don't know how well it's going to be because I can hear, like, you guys seem to be having a little bit of trouble hearing each other. So let's see if we can bring the callers in and see if we can get the questions asked. And if we run into some trouble, uh, I'll just repeat the question. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast with Vic and Mark. How are you? Hello. Hi. Do you have a question for our guests? Uh, yes, I do. Um, it's uh, regarding uh, a certain episode. It was one in which the uh, the Enterprise was uh, in, in the throes of a tractor beam and being uh, uh, drawn into a planet. It was, you know, they needed to uh, <clears throat> break free of the tractor beam before they hit the planet's atmosphere. From that point, there'd be no return. And uh, I call that episode the Voyager One episode because uh, I think the the only name they got for what was trying to suck them into the planet was V'ger, and it turned out to be Voyager One. That had been, uh, you know, at that point, well, because it was set so far in the future that at that point Voyager 1 had been off in space and collected volumes and volumes of data and uh, had landed on this planet and needed to communicate it. Are you guys familiar with that episode? Well, V'ger was actually uh, in, the, in Star Trek, the motion picture. Um, uh, and there was an episode in the original series called The Changeling, where they encountered a Earth probe that had gone out to space and came back um, uh, changed and was trying to sterilize people and so forth. So those two are a little bit similar. The episode you're, you're thinking of is called The Apple. And it wasn't V'ger, it was, uh, what was his name? Val. Vic Val? V-A-L, right? Val was, Val was the computer on the planet that it put a tractor Val. beam around Can the Enterprise and was pulling it yep. down. Uh, and Kirk and the landing party was was trapped on the planet, and he was trying to kill them off with the lightning bolts and everything else. So that was an episode called The Apple from the second season. All right. Thank you very much for the call. And let's uh, let's take this other call real fast. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast with Mark and Vic. Do you have a question? Yes. How are you doing, Timmy? Good. All right. So uh, let me uh, – I have a statement first. All right. So we talked about Lucille Ball. Okay. You know that when she first – when her and uh, Desi Arnaz got married, she, he couldn't afford to buy a ring, so he got one of those uh, cigar things and a beer tab and put, you know, beer ring back then, put it on her finger for, for, for a wedding ring. 
eventually bought a new one, but bought a regular one. But when she died, that's the only thing she wanted to be buried with was that. Oh, that's and that's nice. just saying, you know, after all the time they've been together and loved, you know, loved each other and stuff, they hated each other. She still loved. Them. Right now, you must you must have a Star Trek question, Lamone. Okay, and so I have a question about Star Trek. So now, one more thing about Star Trek. All right, so that you notice how the skirts you come up to being short. They went back to the same same height of skirts they had with Shirley Temple. If you know the Shirley Temple films, that's how short her skirts were. That's like the Brady Bunch girls oh, with the same yeah, size skirts. She was and five years old, though. That's... But it's the truth. And so, um, and it's also, it's like, my, personally, I remember um, uh, hearing Michelle Nichols talk about how she was going to quit, uh, uh, quit, you know, on Star Trek. And right. uh, she, Martin Luther King told us, no, sister. You're right there. You're, put, you're, you're letting, letting everybody see a, a black woman, American black woman, in, 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 in place of honor, in the place of a position of, of, of value and stuff like that. Don't do that. Don't, right. that's, that's working against us. And so she decided to stay, but you know, she decided to stay and do it. Well, so I just thought that was really good and touching and stuff like that. You know, Some things you don't hear about everywhere else. Sure. That's because you're just a spooky south coast. All right. Thank you for the call, Lamone. Is there uh, is there some truth to that, Mark? About uh... oh, absolutely. Yeah, Michelle told me that story uh, uh, for my books, and she uh, also talked about it in her autobiography. At the end of the first season, she was the only one who wasn't under a yearly contract. She was on a weekly contract. Really? So all the others had to come back. You know, whether they wanted to or not, but they all wanted to. Uh, Nichelle was on a weekly contract because they didn't know when they signed her how much they were going to have for the communication officer to do. But they loved her so much, and she was so good, they just kept putting her in episodes. So at the end of the first season, she decided she was going to leave the show and pursue other things. Because even though she had gotten some nice parts, she wasn't one of the more prominent characters in that first season in particular. And so she gave Gene Roddenberry uh, a letter saying that she was, was going to leave. Uh, and then she went to, uh, and I, I couldn't hear everything Ramon was saying, so I hope I'm not repeating something he said, but she went to a, uh, a charity convention and a um, uh, fundraising event, and Martin Luther King was there. And he said, we watch you every week. I mean, you know, you're one of the few black people. You and I spy. Those are the shows we watch. And, and she said, well, thank you very much, but I'll be leaving the show. And he said, you cannot. You are the face of the future for blacks in America. You're not only a woman in a, in a uh, officer, but in outer space, an astronaut. And so she went back into Jean's office uh, after thinking about it and being so impressed by Martin Luther King, and she said, okay, I, I'd like to stay on. Uh, and he said, okay, I'll give you your letter back. And he took it out of an uh, envelope out of the, his uh, drawer, and he poured it on his desk, and he had torn it into pieces. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's take another phone call real quick. Good evening. You're next on Spooky South Coast with Mark and Vic. Hey, Tim, it's John. Um, Vic's got a couple of years on me, but I discovered Star Trek in reruns um, in the 80s, early 80s. And my mother, I used to think she was a Star Trek fan, but when the next generation, the other series and the movies came around, I discovered she was just a Kirk Spock and McCoy fan, which is okay, I guess. Mm -hmm. But um, <laughs> I, I, I love the Sarek episode, um, so it, it's, it's good to be able to, to tell the, the gentleman responsible for it that um, I have not seen Vic's series. I did watch Phase 2, um, uh, Jim Colley's web series, and I uh, liked that very much. But then, you know, I hate to talk about politics, but... 
what's CBS doing? They, they, I think they have a cash cow, and they're just looking at it for money and for their streaming service. And I think they're shooting the fans in the foot, and hopefully things are going to change over there sometime soon. I don't know if either of... Uh, Either the gentlemen on the line want to comment on that. <laughs> well, we'll ask them. But, um, That's a good again? point. I said we'll ask them. That's a great point that they oh. are they are kind of controlling the the Star Trek fan base a little bit, where you have to pay them for their CBS All Access in order to enjoy the Star Trek product. It's a corporation. Yeah, and, uh, in my, in my opinion, had nothing it's not, to do with the making of the original show. It was enjoyable. Uh, Desilu, and it was on NBC, but uh, they acquired it down the road. Uh, with a merger with Paramount, and, and uh, so CBS now has control of all the TV uh, uh, different series that Star Trek had, and I think each one has kind of gone down a little bit in quality from the original. Uh, we had problems on Next Generation because uh, when I was in there pitching stories and I talked to a lot of the other writers, uh, the, the problem was is all the characters liked each other, they all got along, and so that takes drama out of the show. If you look back at the original, there was a lot of friction between Kirk and McCoy and Spock, particularly between McCoy and Spock. And and a lot of the good drama comes out of that. And I used to think not even Shakespeare could write a good episode of Next Generation. Uh, now, my episode, Sarek, uh, the one of the stories that I brought in, uh, was the first, uh, we were try- I was trying to find a way for the regular cast members to have conflict. And so by having Sarek on the, on the ship and going through senility, and, te- and Vulcan's being a little telepathic, it was like putting um, itching powder down the pants of the uh, other characters, and they were getting a little irritable with each other. And the cast loved it. And they said, we've got to do more of these type of shows. So the writers started trying to think of other ways to introduce that kind of conflict. Uh, but if you look at the first year or two of Star Trek The Next Generation, it's pretty, uh, it's, it's not that exciting. Uh, but starting in season three and going forward and bringing in the Borg, I think the show got a lot better. And Vic, uh, I'll let you jump in because uh, you know I, I I haven't really gotten into Discovery yet. I don't watch everything just because it's Star Trek stamped on it. But the show I like and the show I think um, uh, CBS should have gone with for their streaming uh, uh, channel is uh, Star Trek Continues. Thank you so much, Mark. Um, Tim, I'd like to say to your listener, John, who just called in. I don't know if he's still on the he's, line he's or not. He's still on the but, line. But, John, I, I'm very familiar with all of the other fan series, including the one you mentioned, and I can promise you, even though I'm, I'm, I'm partial, <laughs> I can promise you that, that nothing, nothing else touches Star Trek Continues. If you enjoyed the other fan series you've seen, I hope you'll check out our series, and, uh, and I think you will agree with with most everybody else. It's definitely, uh, you know, it's like watching the fourth and fifth seasons of, of the original series that never happened. Uh, well, I John D. Grant, Black, so I think who I, I mentioned earlier, he was the associate producer on the first season of the first Star Trek uh, and wrote the great episode, The Naked Time. Uh, he watched, uh, I got him to watch a couple episodes of Star Trek Continues, and I introduced him to Vic, and he uh, he sat in his story editor on a couple episodes for Star Trek Continues. He thought it was fantastic. And when Vic was doing the audio book for us, which has just come out recently, um, uh, Dorothy Fontana came in and read her own parts, read her own memos, as a lot of the people did. 
And uh, and Vic told her about Star Trek continues. So I'll let you pick up that story, Vic. But I know she was very very impressed. Well, I definitely want to yeah. get get more into the audiobook. Let's just say, uh, say goodbye to John. John, thank you very much for the phone call, and uh, and for calling in and sharing your thoughts and not holding back <laughs> about what you think. <laughs> All right. So uh, we will keep the phone lines open, but I do want to talk about the audiobook. Uh, let's just clarify just uh, for the audience. Let's give them a little bit more information. This is the audiobook version. Of the uh, three, is it three books that you wrote, Mark? Uh, was there yeah. a different one yeah, for each season? Yeah, I wrote season? a book for each season, and these are 500-page books each because, you know, every chapter's got 20 pages filled with these memos and everything else to where you hear uh, Gene Roddenberry and Dorothy Fontana and Gene Kuhn and Bob Justman talking about each episode as they were making them, as they were writing the scripts, the fights with NBC, everything. So you're, it's like you're in a room witnessing all this happening for every episode. And Vic put together this audio book. He's the uh, producer, and he reads all my, all my words. But he brought in uh, original people from Star Trek like D.C. Fontana and casting director Joe D'Agosta and guest stars. And for some of the people who couldn't come up, we had just lost Leonard Nimoy, so Adam Nimoy came in for him. Chris Duhan, who plays Scotty in Star Trek Continues, came in and did his father. Rod Roddenberry, Gene's son, is on the book. Uh, but I'll let, I'll let Vic pick this up because he's the guy who, who should take a bow for this amazing 28-hour audio production. Wow. Yeah, it was, uh, it, was quite, uh, it was quite an ambitious project. You know, Tim, if you're going to do an audio book, most audio books, if you've ever listened to an audio book, most people have, it's just one person. Right. It's one guy, and he reads all of the characters, and he does the narration, and then he'll change his voice maybe in some small way to signify the different characters. And when I, when I, was, when I was kind of planning and organizing how I was going to attack this monstrous book, um, I thought to myself, you know, there are, a hundred, there are more than 100 people in this book, and I, I don't want to have to read them all, and I, I wouldn't <laughs> want to try to, to, to differentiate between all the different people. And then I started thinking, wouldn't it be cool if I assigned a voice to each of the main people? And then I would be the narrator, and then any time Gene Roddenberry spoke, you would hear this other voice, and it would be the voice of Roddenberry. Now, of course, Gene has passed, but the sound supervisor for Star Trek Continues, Ralph Miller does an amazing Gene Roddenberry voice, and he was the voice of Gene Roddenberry. And then Bob Justman, and then like, like, uh, like, um, like Mark said, any of the original people who were still around, like Dorothy and Joe D'Agosta and Clint Howard and uh, Bobby Clark and people that were part of the original series came in and did their own excerpts, and it's really wonderful because it's almost like a radio play. You feel like you're sitting there listening to these people recount their own experiences in their own words. Um, as you can imagine, it took an, it, I, I basically quadrupled my workload by deciding to do that because I had to bring all these people in and coordinate all the recording, but I thought that it would make so much more fun to listen to it would be so much more entertaining for the, the audience. And, uh, and it turned out great. Mark, Mark paid me the finest compliment when, when he said that, uh, 
that I sent um, them. I sent them the first chapter just uh, to give them an idea of what I was doing. And Mark thought he would just listen to the first couple of minutes because, of course, he wrote the book, so he knew the book inside and out. And he ended up listening to the whole chapter because even if you've read the printed book, listening to the audio book and hearing these, these different voices of these people, these iconic figures who made this iconic show, it's like you never read the book. It's like reading it for the first time. Well, because they're going to be able to bring an emotion that even the best voice actors aren't, you know, they weren't there. So they can't convey it as well as the people who actually live this can, can do so. Right. Yeah, but even, yeah, and even, but even then, if you're hearing a different voice, let's say, for instance, every time Jerry Fennerman, the director of photography, speaks, it's not me, it's Matt Busey, our director of photography for Star Trek Continues. Mm -hmm. So you start to recognize, oh, that's the, that's the director of photography talking now. And, oh, that's Roddenberry. And you come to, like I say, as the listener, you come to feel like you're actually listening to the actual people recount their own firsthand experiences in making the series. And, and when we couldn't get the real people, because we've lost a lot of them, so sadly, but uh, we get their offspring, or as Vic just mentioned, uh, he got his director of photography to do Jerry Finneman's voice because he relates to it. I mean, he's imitating sure. Jerry Finneman's lighting and camera work on Star Trek Continues from the original show. So for him providing the voice for Jerry, he knows what he's talking about. He, can, he, can, yeah. he knows how to speak it. And we did that kind of thing several times. Um, everybody, most people that are big Star Trek fans know names like Alexander Courage. And Saul Kaplan and, and uh, 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 the George Dooning and the people that wrote the music for Star Trek. Well, they were quoted in the book. And what I did was I had a gentleman named Andy Farber, who was a composer of original orchestral scores for Star Trek Continues, to be the voice of Alexander Courage. You know, and I, I feel like for fans of Star Trek, <clears throat> excuse me, they're going to they're gonna appreciate not only the fact that you were able to bring all these stories together, Mark, in, in writing the book, and that you were able to bring all these voices together in the production of the audiobook, but they're going to tell the love, they're going to be able to feel the love that both of you have for Star Trek to, to, to put into this, that it's more than just a job for either one of you. The passion that you have for it probably plays out in both projects. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and I've I've got Vic mentioned I paid him a compliment uh, by listening to it. I could not stop listening to it. Uh, it was as if I hadn't written it because it's a performance that's going. It's an audio play that's coming right at me. Uh, but I, I got the same compliment paid to me by by Dorothy and Leonard Nimoy and uh, Walter Koenig and so many others who read the book, and they would call me up and they would say, "Mark, it was like." It was like you took us back. It was like we were there. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you just one quick one. Harlan Ellison, another one we just lost recently. Um, you know, I interviewed him for the book, of course, and, and uh, all the writers and all the directors and all the, the guest players, everybody I could get, and crew members, uh, behind-the-scenes people. But I interviewed Harlan, and Harlan, very distinctive. <laughs> he scares people. He's so witty. And, and he can get on the attack when he wants to. He's funny, 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 but he gets on the attack. And so he always, you're always a little nervous when, when uh, Harlan's kind of coming at you. Uh, well, my phone rang after the book came out, and we sent copies to everybody. 
and the phone rings, and there's Harlan Ellison's name on my phone. And I thought, uh-oh. <laughs> and I picked it up. I said, hi, Harlan. He says, Cushman? I said, yeah, Harlan. He says, I'm not going to say it's great. I'm not going to, no, he said, I'm not going to say it's awesome. Because awesome is a word I reserve for Eleanor Roosevelt and the Grand Canyon. But it comes close. <laughs> so, you know, I, I was shaking in my chair. And he said that, and I just started laughing out loud because I did not expect a compliment from Harlan Ellison. Well, I mean, that, that just goes to show that uh, everybody out there that's a Star Trek fan, you should pick up the books and pick up the audiobook because, like Vic was saying, it's a different experience. You know, it's one, one thing to hold the book in your hand and to go through it or to hold the three books in your hand and go through them, but it's another thing to be able to hear hear it being uh, portrayed for you as well. So pick up both, and uh, and can they get them uh, all from your website, Mark, or where, where should they go to, to, to get uh, each one? My publisher is Jacobs Brown Media Group. Uh, that's a little hard to remember, but you could type in these are the voyages books dot com. It'll take you to their website. You can get the books there signed by the author. Uh, you can get the audio book there. Uh, the audio book's also available on All Sound, A W E S O U N D, and dot uh, com. And uh, you can get the books at uh, Barnes and Noble. You can get the books at Amazon, but you can only get the audio book through uh, Jacobs Brown and All Sound. Excellent. And, and, and Tim, sorry, go ahead. Vic. Tim, if, I, if I may say, Tim, um, for the Star Trek fans out there in your audience, I I am a huge original series Star Trek fan, and when I I thought I knew a lot about this show, and when I read these books, I was regularly blown away by new things that I learned. Um, I I. I I found out so much about the show, the making of the show, the, the actors, the behind-the-scenes people, the networks, the arguments, the challenges, all of it. As a, as a hardcore, lifelong Star Trek fan, I learned so much from these books. So your Star Trek fans in your audience, even if you, you think, well, you know, I, I, I know all there is to know about Star Trek, um, you would be amazed uh, at how much information... Uh, there is in these books, and they're just they're just a treasure trove of wonderful stories. Can I ask Vic a question, Tim? Sure. Uh, I've never asked him this, and I'm just curious. Um, Vic, uh, you loved the show to death before you ever read that book and did the audiobook, yeah. of course. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and if he hadn't done the audiobook, he probably wouldn't have read it because it was such a big book and Vic's such a busy <laughs> guy. But... Um, uh, did it change the way you feel about any of the episodes? When you watch an episode now, do you see it in a different light, knowing what they went through to make it and why they wanted to make that particular episode? That's a great question, Mark. And you know what? Um, you, you have to understand also that when I read this book, I was not reading it from the, just from the standpoint of a Star Trek fan, but I was reading it from the standpoint of an executive producer of a Star Trek TV series. And I was, I was daily amazed by the way they came up with certain decisions about different scripts, the way they were under the gun uh, for this shooting day, the problems they had with this episode, the difficulties they had with this script and this writer and, and production and special effects and so many things that we even had to deal with in my series. And I thought, wow, it just, it just brought it, it made it so real to me that these were people that were pioneering new territory 
in television, they were having to come up with things that had never been done before and trying to figure out how to do them. And, uh, and it was, it was, it was mind blowing to me. It was, it was such an amazing experience. I, I loved every minute of reading this book. Jim, do I have time for a 30 second story? Absolutely. Well, like I wanted to know all this stuff too. And I was, I was just like a kid in a candy store going through all these boxes of memos and all the production reports and so forth. And there was an episode I love called Shore Leave, where they're on a fantasy planet and whatever they're thinking of comes true in front of them. And there was a, a tiger that went after them in this episode. But if you watch the episode, the tiger's got a, a uh, chain around it. And when you see the close-up and you go, why do they have a chain on that tiger? That's silly. And I found out reading the production reports, it's because the tiger went after William Shatner, and he had to climb up on top of a grip truck to get away from it. It almost killed him. And, and so the, nobody wanted to be near the tiger. They had to put a chain around it to keep it from killing the star of the show. Wow. Well, I, I'm going to ask you one more question, Vic, and that being that, okay, there's been two, uh, three, if we want to count you know, playing them as a kid, but there's been two actors that have embodied Captain Kirk over the years for people. And so you're stepping into some, some shoes that are pretty much owned, especially at the time that you did it, by William Shatner. Was there a lot of trepidation about having to play that role in Star Trek Continues? Definitely. I, uh, I love Bill Shatner. I love Captain Kirk. I love William Shatner. Um, I've, I've come to know him and be friends with him. And I wanted to honor him. The last thing I would ever want to do would be to not only do a poor job of playing the character, but worse, ever have anyone think that I was satirizing him or doing some kind of a parody of Captain Kirk, you know, like a lot of people do sometimes. And uh, so when I was, I'll never forget, the very first episode that we shot, I was standing in the turbo lift with Chris Dewan, here we are in perfect uniforms, makeup, ready to walk out onto the bridge of the Enterprise for the first time. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, my God, like, what, a, what if it's no good? Like, you know, that's the kind of thing you fantasize about when you're a little boy, but you know you'll never get to do it, so it's nothing you really have to think about. You know, it's like saying, wouldn't it be cool to be a fighter jet pilot? Well, I'm never going to be a fighter jet pilot so I'd never have to worry about actually doing that. But dreaming of playing your childhood hero, and then four decades later, you are standing on a perfect recreation of the soundstage, wearing a perfect uniform made of the same fabric, surrounded by people that look like, you know, and in costume of the other characters, and suddenly there's this very daunting uh, overwhelming uh, anxiety that you want it to be good. You want you want to pay the proper tribute to it and to Shatner and Kirk. And I I will tell you that we have had thousands of of emails about our show come in, and a lot of people say, you know, what I loved about your show was you you guys weren't imitating the characters you were kind of embodying the characters it was it was it wasn't like an imitation it was um it was di it was different we felt like we were watching the original show after 10 minutes 
I forgot I was watching a fan production. Um, that's probably the highest compliment anyone could pay us. Um, I wanted to pay tribute to Bill Shatner and, and Kirk and Star Trek, and most everyone that I brought into the series had the same feeling. We were unified in that desire to, to pay tribute and honor to those who made the original series. And Mark, one last question for you. I know that in the grand scheme of things, you know, you, you've had a relatively you know, small part in the, the grand Star Trek universe. But if you could speak for everybody that's been involved with it, going all the way back to Gene Roddenberry, what are you most proudest about what Star Trek has meant to people over the years? It, it, it inspires us. I, I mean, look, look what it's done with technology. You know, the cell phone, the, the Internet, the Spock's computer. We, we all have these things because the kids watching the show went on to invent this stuff as adults. <clears throat> and, and just the changes that television went through because of the show. The new uh, edition of Time Magazine has Shatner and Nimoy and all the others on the cover from Star Trek. Uh, and, and the headline under the picture is the most influential show in the history of television. It certainly is. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us tonight and for going down memory lane with us when it comes to Star Trek, but also looking toward the future as well. We thank you both, and hopefully we can do this again sometime. Let's make it an annual thing where we, we spend some time reminiscing about Star Trek. Love to, Tim. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And in the meantime, Tim, I hope you'll check out Star Trek Continues. Absolutely. Uh, get, why don't you um, give everybody the website one more time, Vic, so that they can go and find it for themselves? StarTrekContinues.com. Uh, we are on Facebook as well. Join our Facebook group, Star Trek Consent Continues, uh, and check them out. Like I said, everything is there, and it's all free. And we, we didn't even scratch the surface of all of Mark's other work, uh, including uh, some work on the uh, some work going back and reminiscing about the show Lost in Space, which, you know, he might be listening. He's in the sound of our voice. Mark, Mark Goddard actually lives uh, somewhere in our listening area. So Mark Goddard wrote the foreword to uh, one of the wonderful person. So maybe there's a whole other episode we can do as well. Okay, I'd love to. All right, guys. Thank you so much. Happy New Year to you, and uh, and we'll talk again soon. Bye-bye. Thank you. Take Thanks care. so much. And to everybody out there listening, thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, it was a really, really fun show, and I can't wait to, to talk some more Star Trek with these guys in the future. And if you have any thoughts on Star Trek that you want to share with us, you can email us, spookycrew at spookysouthcoast.com. That's how you can get a hold of us at any time during the week. Follow us on Twitter, at SpookySC, on Instagram, at Spooky underscore South Coast. Follow me, at Tim Weisberg, pretty much across all social media. And, uh, and we look forward to talking to you again. We should have a show next week. Week. Little little inside information. Next Saturday is my birthday, uh, so as far as I know, I'll be here doing the show. But uh, you know, things might change. Keep an eye on the Spooky South Coast Twitter account and on my Twitter at Tim Weisberg to see if anything changes with that. So until next time, for Matt, for Matt, for Stephanie, I am Tim. We want you all to stay spooktacular. <laughs>